Welcome to Guilty as Charged, the law behind the crimes. Exploring law and public policy relevant to criminal law here in Arizona, where nothing is out of bounds and all perspectives are considered. Welcome to Guilty as Charged. We're excited to be hosting another episode of our new podcast focused on Arizona criminal law. Today, we're going to be talking about issue about State v. Valenzuela and some of his progeny. We're going to be talking about implied consent. Uh, this will be something that probably most of the DUI practitioners out there will be very familiar with. But we'll try to get in a little bit deeper. Of course, we're always looking for more guests and more topics. Uh, the criminal justice community in Arizona is relatively small and we know each other pretty well. So if you have a legal or a policy issue related to criminal law that you think is interesting, there's probably others out there that are dealing with it or, or similarly interested in it. So please reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, shoot me a text, send me an email, however you'd like to get in touch, um, and we'll get something set up and we'll record it. Of course, as we get started, please remember that the views and opinions expressed here are our own, just of mine and, and of our guests today that I'll introduce in a second. We're not speaking on behalf of any of our clients, any employers, or any other entities that we're affiliated with in any way. But getting right into it, today we have Adam Susser here with us. Many of you will probably know Adam, been familiar. He's been in the criminal justice sphere for quite a long time, I think about 18 years. Um, he's been a private attorney with the mixed perspective of a former prosecutor, occasionally a judge pro tem, but primarily a DUI and criminal defense attorney whose practice, like I said, is I think he's into his, his 18th year. Is that about right, Adam? That is correct. Anything that I missed or that I needed to add there? No, yeah, you you hit it good. I mean, I've, I've hit just about every area of criminal law you can do. Uh, you know, I practice regularly in every city court, every justice court, frequently in superior court. I have been to the court of appeals as the petitioner, as the respondent, as a prosecutor, as a defense attorney. I'm a superior court judge pro tem. I've done a lot. Now, the, you know, the illusion, just so no one gets any wrong ideas, is that all of that makes it sound like I really know what I'm doing. And the the best trick that any defense attorney ever can do is to convince the rest of the world that he knows more than they do, when in truth, I probably know less than anyone. But what uh, what I try to do is sound very confident when I, uh, I give my opinions. That usually carries the day. <laughs> Sometimes that bit of confidence is more important than actually knowing what you're talking about. But don't let Adam fool you. He definitely, he knows what he's doing. We're excited to have him on. I'm sure that he will be a returning guest in the future of various issues. Several times I've had the opportunity to talk to Adam about different issues in court or, you know, while we're waiting for a case to be called or we're outside the courtroom. And definitely he's one that enjoys talking about the substance of criminal law. Today, we are going to be talking about implied consent. Maybe we can start with, with the statute, Adam. What is the, the implied consent? What, what does that mean? And what's the statute that, that starts that or, or that, that requires that? Sure. And, and there's, you know, it's funny. It sounds like such a simple concept, but, but we could spend a really long time just breaking down what implied consent means. And I guess I'll, I'll assume our audience has some familiarity with what we're talking about. And I won't just, you know, do DUI 101. But let's uh, let's just say that in Arizona, and in fact, as far as I know, all 50 states have some version, if not an exact copy of Arizona's implied consent law. And, and what it means, you know, if you really want to break it into kind of a simple statement, what it means is that 
every single person who operates a motor vehicle on any public street in uh, in the state, I was going to say the nation, but I'll, I'll just limit it to the state, impliedly, just like it says, gives consent to a test of their blood, breath, or other bodily substance to determine its alcohol concentration or its drug content. In Arizona, we we have memorialized that in a statute uh, under our transportation code. It's Title 28, and it is generally listed under 28.13.85. That, that's our, what's called the administrative per se or the admin per se statute. The implied consent statute itself is actually kind of a corollary to that, and it's ARS 28.13.21. The, the difference between those two statutes, and, and this is the funny part, both of those statutes are actually kind of identical. They more or less say the same thing. What they differ on is that when talking about chemical testing after a person's been arrested for a DUI, the law prescribes two different sets of consequences. One set if you consent, that's 28.13.85, and one set if you refuse, that's 28.13.21. The portion of the statute that we all generally think of as implied consent is usually the 13.21, and that's what happens if you refuse. Okay. And so what does happen? I mean, I, I think we can say real quick, if we're talking administrative penalties here and specifically probably more focused on licensure, but so what does happen if you either consent or refuse? Sure. And it's probably important to note that the consequences for either consenting or refusing are entirely civil. There's no, at least in Arizona, there is no consequence, and, and we can talk about that later when we get to, to Birchfield, but there's no criminal consequence whatsoever to refusing or to consenting. Uh, basically, the, the consequences all deal with your driver's license, and that's partially why the statute itself is under the, the transportation code, because the, the thrust of it is not or the results, you know, whether you consent or you refuse, let's assume that the state is able to get a, a breath or a blood test and they want to use that against you, they're going to use it in a criminal proceeding, but the statutes are primarily concerned with driver's licenses. So all civil and the consequences are, again, almost virtually identical with the exception of the duration of the suspension. So uh, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let me be more elementary. If a person, I'm not going to read the statute, I'm just going to paraphrase it, but if a person is arrested for a DUI, and we can call it a valid arrest for purposes of this explanation, but if a person is arrested for a DUI and the cop requests that they submit to a test or tests of their blood breath or other bodily substance to determine alcohol concentration or drug content, and and this is this is the critical part of the, the consent form of the statute. And the test results show a blood alcohol concentration of 0 0.08 or greater, or the presence of an impairing drug and or its metabolite. And again, there, there's some case law on that we can talk about in a different show. But if those things are discovered and a person consented to a chemical test, the law says at a minimum they must lose their privilege to drive in Arizona for a period of 90 days. They are eligible to get a restricted permit during that 90-day window, but they must also 
jump over a couple of hurdles before they can get their full driver's license back. So everyone who gets arrested for DUI has to do an alcohol or a drug screening. Now, ironically, despite all my years of doing criminal law, whether it was defense or prosecution, I've never actually gone through the screening, so I don't know what happens during the screening, but my understanding is it's sort of like a, an interview. A lot of my clients will always ask me, you know, what happens during the screening? They think just based on the word screening that they have to go, uh, you know, perform a urinalysis and someone's going to test it for mm-hmm. alcohol or drugs. And I'm always uh, very quick to explain, no, 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 they call it a screening, but what it really is, is a, uh, it's kind of a psychological exam. Even the professionals have a term for it. They call it a FASI. I think it stands for something like substance abuse screening instrument. And all they do is they ask you a bunch of questions. It takes about a half an hour. It costs about 50 bucks. And they ask you a bunch of questions like, how often do you drink? Do you drink a lot? Do you drink alone? Do you drink on weekends? Do you binge drink? What they're trying to figure out, you know, they they have certain licensing requirements in order to be certified as uh substance abuse counselors, but I think what they're trying to figure out when you get right down to it is, is this person you know, a, uh, a serious addict who will require a lot of counseling, or is this someone that we can give sort of the minimum first time, this is probably a one-off or an uncommon incident, and we can get the minimum amount of counseling that's necessary under the law. Every single person who takes the SASE as the consequence of a DUI, at least in my experience, must do at least 16 hours of education as part of the alcohol or drug screening and counseling process. Now, all of that, everything I just uh, talked about is what comes from consenting, you know, and, and a lot of my clients will flip out because they think that sounds like they're, they have to do a lot. And, and it's really not that bad in terms of the commitment of time or money. It's just, here's what the law says you have to do. You got arrested for a DUI. There are some consequences if you want to keep your driver's license. Uh, The irony, and I, again, I've never seen to the contrary on this, but the irony is in order to get your driver's license back, I don't believe you actually have to do the classes. The Department of Transportation only requires that you do the screening that the company says we've assessed this person a certain number of hours, but they don't actually determine that you've done the classes. That's a component for the court. That's what happens when we we start dealing with criminal consequences. The person actually has to do the classes in order to avoid an extended term in jail. But in terms of the driver's license issue, you only have to do the screening, pay the fee, and wait the the requisite amount of And then, so that's if if somebody is consenting, they're going to get that 90 days with, you know, so long as they do the screening and and pay the the reinstatement fee and everything like you mentioned. But what happens if when they're asked to give the the substance, as you said, and and as we know, I think most of the time in Arizona, we're mostly talking about breath or blood, sometimes urine, and it could be something else, but almost, almost always those. What happens if they refuse? Okay. All, everything I just described for consent still applies for refusal. If you refuse, you still have to do the screening to get your license back someday. You still have to pay the fee. The big difference is the duration. So you get a 90 day suspension for a consent. And and there's some 
I'll call it semantic terminology that is different. Ultimately, I think it boils down to the same. But for a refusal, it is a one-year revocation of your driver's license versus the 90-day suspension. And, and again, the, the part that I, I kind of wave the semantic flag at is that they call the 90-day a suspension and they call the one-year a revocation. But if you really just want to be plain, you say, a period of time that you cannot lawfully drive. You know, mm. whether you call it a suspension or a revocation, it's ultimately the same thing. And I think you said previously when, when you were kind of introducing the topic that this is something that they do across the country. We're not unique in Arizona to have some kind of a, like you said, civil or administrative punishment for somebody that refuses. Uh, no, very, in my experience, and again, I'm, I'm only licensed in Arizona. I'll give myself that caveat in case anyone thinks I'm dispensing legal advice outside of my own jurisdiction. But as far as I am aware, every state has a minimum of some kind of administrative consequence for a DUI. Now, I know that there is some variety in the states between the duration about what you're allowed to do while you're suspended what you have to do to get your license back. And most states like Arizona have different consequences for consenting than they do for refusing. Uh, and some states are very harsh. Uh, and that that was what gave rise to the whole Birchfield case, uh, which went to the, the U.S. Supreme Court, I think. At a minimum, you're, you're usually looking at some form of a suspension or a restriction on your license because there is such an overwhelmingly strong policy you know regardless of whether you think it's a uh, it's a, a really heinous crime or you think it's it's you know sort of no big deal there is an overwhelmingly powerful public policy about controlling people who drive while impaired and so the law almost always comes down very heavy-handedly on on people that even are accused of doing it because we're so concerned that people people might be willing to do it if the consequences aren't that bad and we want to discourage that so we we make the consequences very severe uh, even just for getting arrested and i i will give the same caveat that you did that i also don't practice in other states i i have i from what i understand wyoming might be the one exception that they don't have for regular drivers i think Everybody does for commercial drivers, but I think for regular, just your typical driver, I'm not sure that they have some kind of a penalty for refusing. But yes, it's pretty much ubiquitous across the country that that everybody does something like that. And so maybe we can talk a little bit. I think you mentioned Birchfield before as well. W what does Birchfield have to do with this then? And this sure. is a Supreme Court case from not too long ago. I, I, honestly, I can't remember, remember the year right now, but wasn't too many years ago. I think I was practicing when it came out. So yeah, no, Birchfield was from 2016. I, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, a pretty recent case, especially as far as the U.S. Supreme Court goes. You know that one of the funny things I've always found as an appellate lawyer, especially, is you'll get cases that come out from the high courts. You know, you, you talk about the the United States Supreme Court or one of the circuit courts, uh, or even even the Arizona Supreme Court. You know, the decision comes out and the the incident that gave rise to the case happened years ago, you know? So the funny part is always that by the time the courts get around to ruling, 
the the situation's already been resolved. You know, things have already changed. Either the law has changed, the legislature fixed it, or some police agency has changed their practices just because they they saw the writing on the wall. But whatever it is, you know, it's like okay, we got this great decision uh, in 2016. Now Birchfield might be the funny exception to what I just said because I think Mr. Birchfield, uh, the de- the defendant was actually arrested relatively close to the time that that went up. And I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but I want to say somewhere around 20, maybe it's like 2015. Like somehow that case went through the system really quickly is, is my recollection. But that, that usually happens when, when an issue is kind of ripe for determination, the, the courts will, will, kind of suck it up fairly quickly. Uh, oh, I was off. I, I think it was 2013, actually. So three years, which in United States Supreme Court jurisprudence is actually very, very fast. Uh, some of those cases, you know, take the better part of a decade to work their way up through the system. But let, we can talk about Birchfield a little bit. Uh, like a lot of Supreme Court cases, cool thing about Birchfield is it actually was more than one case. Uh, what happened is there were there were three, and again, I'm, I'm going to some extent off my memory. So if I misspeak, you know, legal community, don't, don't uh, vilify me. But if I remember it, there were three defendants and they were from three, I believe three different states. And the issue was that all three of them received some form of different treatment under their state laws for their DUI processing. And and the Birchfield decision itself was was important because it covered a large swath of the process in a DUI. And and I'll be a little more specific. I think Mr. Birchfield himself was probably the most significant defendant as part of that appeal because the the underlying proceedings was that like like everyone, you know, all the defendants in Birchfield all three of them got arrested for APUI. Uh, Mr. Birchfield, like every other defendant, especially in Arizona, was asked to consent to a test of his blood so that they could figure out his alcohol concentration. But North Dakota had done something that, again, I think if not only North Dakota, maybe one or two other states had done. So so very, very uncommon up until now. And I believe this is still sort of the case. But North Dakota had criminalized refusing. Uh, North Dakota had actually made it a misdemeanor, a separate, prosecutable, arrestable misdemeanor. If a person was arrested for a DUI and refused to submit to a breath of blood case, they got charged with a, uh, I said case, I meant test. They got charged with a separate crime and the crime was refusing to submit really quickly because they're, they're sort of the, the less critical parts of the decision. The other two defendants there, one was from Minnesota. Uh, same deal. He got arrested for ADUI. They read him the implied consent affidavit and uh, he refused to submit to the test. The difference was Birchfield refused to submit to a blood test. And the second defendant, his name was uh, Bernard. Uh, he refused to submit to a breath test. And so he got charged with the Minnesota version 
of the refusal statute. And it might have just been uh, North Dakota and Minnesota having criminalized the refusal. But I believe he also got charged with some kind of refusal misdemeanor. So Minnesota also criminalized it. It wasn't just a civil penalty? I believe so. And I think that's why it got the attention that it got. I know that other than North Dakota and Minnesota, that there were very few other states that had criminalized that refusal. But in the Birchfield decision, my recollection is they said something about after he had refused the test, uh, he got charged with the refusal. So I'm guessing without actually looking at the Minnesota statute that they also had some kind of criminal version of the refusal. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, the last defendant there, his name was Balin. Mr. Balin was a little bit different. He got arrested for a DUI. The cops drove him to a hospital uh, because I'm guessing they either, in, and he was also in North Dakota, the same as Birchfield. I'm guessing the cops there either don't do police blood draws or they didn't have someone available because they took him to a hospital and they read him the implied consent uh, affidavit and he ref no he agreed excuse me uh he agreed to have his blood tested but they there there was argument on his part that he had been coerced uh so so with the last defendant of birchfield it wasn't a matter of refusal it was a matter of whether his consent was voluntary so you know that'll that'll later become an issue when we talk about valenzuela and I believe the Valenzuela court in Arizona cited to Birchfield. So this did happen first, and that kind of set the stage for the whole voluntariness analysis in Arizona that we still follow. Uh, That also happened in 2016. So before we get to that voluntariness analysis, then what did Birchfield then end up holding? And what was the specific question there where they were asking whether police could punish them or could require them to consent? Or what what was the... Sure. That... It, again, it, I have to preface everything by, uh, you know, if I remember correctly, I don't claim to be the all-knowing encyclopedia, but uh, if I remember correctly, the, the holding of Birchfield vis-a-vis Mr. Birchfield was, can a state criminalize the refusal to submit to a blood test? And the answer that the U.S. Supreme Court gave is no. It is unconstitutional for a state to say uh, we are going to treat it as a criminal matter if you refuse to submit to a blood test. So my my recollection is Mr. Birchfield's conviction uh, was reversed. Uh, he and he was uh, acquitted of that particular charge. Okay, so now and all of this is kind of a lengthy lead up to kind of what you already said uh, is the interesting case in Arizona that kind of really uh, changed things for the DUI community. And maybe it didn't change as much as we act like it changed, but it felt like a big change to us for sure where the question then becomes, how does consent work then? Can officers tell somebody that they are required by law to submit to a test based on this implied consent statute that we've talked about, based on some of the Supreme Court precedent? So what what happened in Valenzuela and why was that such a big deal? And I guess I can't answer your question without without giving a little bit of a history lesson. I would expect nothing less. <laughs> and I would hate to disappoint. So my understanding, and of course, this is long, long before my time, but my understanding is that, you know, the, the crime of DUI itself has been around since at least the early 20th 
century. And it wouldn't surprise me if there were references to it or if it had been criminalized somehow even in the 19th century. And who knows, it was probably a crime to ride your horse while drunk, you know, it could <laughs> cause an accident. But at a minimum, DUI in some form has probably been around at least for about 100 years. So long preceding the prevalence of cars. But for the first, I don't know, you know, let's call it maybe 40 years or so that DUI was around, there were no limitations on law enforcement's ability to sort of measure whether or not a person was drunk or was, you know, they probably used words like intoxicated or, you know, inebriated, some kind of, some kind of basically a euphemism for drunk, but there weren't a lot of limitations on what the, the cops could do to try to test that. And, you know, there's some funny, there's some funny anecdotal stories. And again, we, we can talk about this another day, but prior to the advent of standardized field sobriety tests, you know, there were, there were anecdotal stories that cops would pull people over in, especially in rural parts of America, and they would kind of subject them to their own homegrown form of field sobriety test, you know, make people recite lines from the HMS Pinafore. And, and you know, if they couldn't say the lines or they couldn't hop on one leg, whatever they were doing, the cop would say, oh, this person was drunk. You know, they were clearly uh, DUI. But putting that aside for a moment, somewhere in the, the 1960s is my recollection. They were still doing blood and breath testing. You know, those things were were in their, uh, I, I would call them infancy, but uh, nevertheless, blood and breath testing has been around for a very long time. What What's happened is that the science has gotten unbelievably better, but the notion that we can detect a person's alcohol level based on a breath test or on a blood test has been around for, for decades. So what had happened is you've had, you've got like a century worth of DUI crimes and no real limitation on law enforcement's part for how they obtain a breath of blood sample. So in the 1960s, you got you got a case that came out uh, called Schmerber v. California. And I don't, again, off the top of my head, I don't really remember the facts of Schmerber very well. Uh, if I recall correctly, he was some California motorist. He got pulled over and arrested for a DUI. And the cops essentially said, you know, you're giving us a blood sample, whether you like it or not. And, and that's kind of that. Well, after he was convicted, Mr. Schmerber's appeal was based on the notion that a blood or breath test that happens after a person gets arrested for a DUI is still subject to the limitations on search and seizure that we all know in the Fourth Amendment. So Schmerber, and I think it was 1966, which, you know, we, we take a lot of these things for granted today, but can you imagine how monumental it would have been in the 60s for the U.S. Supreme Court to say for the very first time that when law enforcement takes a sample of your breath or blood for chemical testing pursuant to a DUI, that constitutes a search or a seizure under the Fourth Amendment. And so cops, you uh, you just can't do that anymore, you know, you or at least you're subject to the limitations of the Fourth Amendment if you want to continue doing that. So this is this leads us right back to that whole implied consent and admin per se uh, discussion. After Schmerber uh, is my understanding, 
almost every state in the union looked at the Schwerber decision and said, well, if a blood test or a breath test is a search under the Fourth Amendment, what is the most common exception to the search, the search prohibition of the Fourth Amendment? Consent. So they all passed some form of an implied consent statute where after Schmerber, they said, okay, if we know that we're going to be subject to Fourth Amendment analysis, we're going to say every single person who drives is giving consent to a chemical test. And a lot of the case law that came out after Schmerber still cites back to Schmerber, you know, and again, this is the funny part. When we talk about Fourth Amendment issues that come up in DUIs, a lot of those briefs will still cite to Schmerber. Even though it's a 60 year old case, it is still good law. It has never been revisited. It is only, um, it's been refined without question. But that was the case that established search and seizure jurisprudence applying to a chemical test in a DUI. So, your original question of, you know, what is this? What is the Valenzuela case? What's going on? And what does uh, an officer say to someone who's getting arrested for a DUI? So, when you look through the lens of that whole, Schmerber decision and what came afterward and the implied consent laws. What happened is that the Arizona Department of Transportation, and again, there's there's some parts of the system that I am most definitely not aware of for how the sausage gets made in terms of this form. But what I do know is that at some point, the Arizona Department of Transportation produced a form. And I suspect that most states have a version of this form. But they produced a form, and it's called the Admin Per Se Implied Consent Affidavit. And the earliest version of it that I am aware of was probably from like the 80s or 90s. And prior to that, I don't know what they did for the consequences of a DUI arrest. But somewhere in the 80s or 90s, we saw this Admin Per Se form. And what the Department of Transportation did, you know, like any government agency, they work in concert with law enforcement, so they're trying to figure out how can we make law enforcement's job easier. Because the problem is, cops are not lawyers; they don't they don't know the law, you know. And I've I've had many a spirited argument with different cops, some more friendly than others, that cops are not supposed to know the law. They're supposed to know how to enforce it. They're supposed to know how to how to apply it, but they are not supposed to actually know it. So in that very vein, uh, what the Department of Transportation did was they produced this form to try to make it simpler. And the form was boilerplate, so it could be read to every single person who got arrested for a DUI. And it sort of tried to give a layman's version of the requirements of the implied consent statute. Now, there, there's some certain hilarity in this to me as a defense attorney, because, you know, I look at things from the practical perspective and you look at that implied consent form and it doesn't have too much legalese, at, at least the, the original version of it didn't have any real legalese, but to someone who was probably intoxicated at least a little bit, who just got hauled to a police station in handcuffs, this officer, you know, who's wearing his uniform, he's got his gun belt on, he all official, starts off by reading this form, and the first line, for at least 20 years, said, Arizona law requires 
that a person who is arrested for a, a DUI consents to a test or test of their blood breath or other bodily substance. And that sort of lead in was the predicate to what eventually became the Valenzuela decision about whether or not telling someone that they were required to submit to a test was an accurate statement of the law. Well, and was Valenzuela, was the question whether it was an accurate statement or was the question whether you could actually get true consent if you were relying on the law? It was concerned, the latter, not the former. You know, the there has been, or there had been, I should say, cases for years pre-Valenzuela that dealt with this issue. You know, uh, and, and again, you go back to Schmerber and the cases that came after Schmerber and what they're saying is, well, if we're going to say that uh, you can test a person's blood or breath consensually, the normal Fourth Amendment jurisprudence that goes along with that must be that the consent is given voluntarily. Mm-hmm. And there are there's a, a huge body of case law on what constitutes voluntary consent. You know, is it is it an objective standard? Is it a subjective standard? Uh, what kind of evidence can we consider? You know, where what are the circumstances where we could say it's always involuntary or always voluntary? Uh, and there was just decades of case law, but the the really the most seminal version that I am aware of happened in 2013. So three years prior to Valenzuela, we had another case that I believe I'm going to shoot from the hip because I didn't actually look it up before uh, we're talking today, but I believe it was a court of appeals case and it was State v. Butler. And the Butler decision was cited to by the Valenzuela court. And, and it, you know, every time one of these decisions comes out, they always repeat the, the same 20 cases that form the basis of most of our DUI jurisprudence get recited every single time one of these decisions comes out. So it's always it's always the court saying, you know, here's some new interpretation of pre-existing law. It, it's very rare that we actually see a case come out that the courts will say, here is an issue we have never, ever had before. It's always, here's uh, an issue that we've had for 30 years, but we're going to do something different with it. So, the, and the, just, oh, just, I did just pull up Butler real quick just to confirm, and it is a Supreme Court decision. Okay, okay, th- thanks for correcting me. Um, and I, I couldn't remember, you know, and to be honest, uh, the human factor that you look at enough of these cases, they tend to run on with one another. You easily forget which court they come out of. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, if I remember Butler correctly, you know, and again, part of of what can be an interesting thing about DUIs with search and seizure is a lot of the cases that form the basis for DUI jurisprudence are not DUI cases. And I think Butler was one of them. Butler was not a DUI. He was some he was some teenager. And as I recall, he he went to school that day like normal. And there was some kind of anonymous tip from another student that Butler had either like drugs or he had a weapon or he had something in his backpack. So Butler gets called into the principal's office. The principal calls the school resource officer. And they ask for permission to search his backpack. And of course, Butler is a teenager. He doesn't know his rights. He doesn't, 
you know, he, all he knows is he's freaked out because a bunch of administrators and law enforcement are asking for permission to search his backpack. So he says, sure, you know, go ahead, search it. No problem. And sure enough, you know, they find drugs or weapons or whatever it was they were looking for in his backpack. And the whole issue was whether or not his consent was given voluntarily. Well, the decision was applied to DUI. And the whole issue was that the consent was not given voluntarily because he was a juvenile. He was not told that he could refuse. He was in a, a high pressure setting. He's essentially in custody, even though he wasn't handcuffed and he wasn't under arrest, you know, he's not free to leave. He's sitting in the principal's office. He doesn't have a parent. So that Butler analysis was applied to that language from the admin per se about whether a person is voluntarily consenting to a test of their blood breath or other bodily substance. And so the Butler decision preceded Valenzuela, but it was cited to by Valenzuela because what happened is that language that we've talked about. So, so for 20 or 30 years, cops would read this form that would say, Arizona law requires you to submit to a test or test. And the Valenzuela court said, you can't tell someone that they're required to submit to a test and then pretend like they had a free choice to say no, you know, it's so the, the language of that became the problem, but there must be a part of Butler that I'm forgetting because I know that after Butler, there was a change to that form. And that's why there, again, there, there was another interesting case that came out right before Valenzuela or right around the time of Valenzuela that dealt with an issue from Butler. So Butler must have included an element of DUI, like whether it, or not that it was. It, it you, you, everything you said is right. The only difference was when they had him there, he had arrived to school late. And I, I'm very impressed with how well you could remember it because clearly you're remembering it because you're forgetting the DUI part. But I just pulled it up. That's the only reason I know this. But they, he arrived to school late and admitted to driving there, and so he okay. was arrested ultimately okay. for DUI. Okay, and that makes sense. And and I was just going to say, you know, it's like there must have been some element of DUI to Butler because there was there was an application to that of after the Butler case, the Department of Transportation changed their form. Mm -hmm. So in 2013, almost immediately after Butler, that form used to say Arizona law requires you to submit. All of a sudden, now it said Arizona law states. That a person who is arrested for a DUI gives consent to a test or test of the blood breath or other bodily substance. So the big change, you know, and I, I rambled on about it for a while now, but it, if you boil it down to simplicity, the big change after the Butler decision was one word on that form. So that and, law enforcement. Oh, and I know, I know you talked about this earlier, but just to reiterate, this form is a form that is read to virtually every single person that's stopped and suspected of driving under the influence in Arizona, right? Correct. And and I would agree with your use of the word virtually. I mean, there yeah. are there are definitely some scenarios, and I could conjure up a couple of them if I tried, but mm -hmm. there are some scenarios where law enforcement will skip over that form because they're just not interested in whether or not the person consents. They will go straight to a search warrant. And the most common scenario is if you have a crime that's more serious than a DUI. Yeah, so some significant yeah. injuries involved. Yeah, Obviously, if, if the suspect himself 
or herself is not able to consent because of their injuries. Yeah, definitely some circumstances where it's not, but most of the time. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Most of the time they'll use that format and it makes sense from a practical perspective because it's easy. You know, it's quick. Mm -hmm. If they read the form and the person consents, uh, the job is done. You know, the next thing, the only thing left to do is stick them with a needle, draw some blood and uh, have that be that. But, so then was the Valenzuela court, were they impressed by the change from Arizona law requires to Arizona law states? Um, I wouldn't use the word impress. <laughs> I, would, I would say that the uh, Supreme Court was less than thrilled with the language about uh, Arizona law states. It, you know, and again, we could we could dig into some of the appellate nitty gritty of Valenzuela. It, Valenzuela itself came out of Division Two of the Arizona Court of Appeals. I do remember that much. And the reason that it got taken up, or at least a, a very compelling reason for it to have gone up to the Supreme Court, and you don't see this very often in the Court of Appeals. You know, someday I'll have lunch with some Court of Appeals judge and ask why this is, and I have a suspicion it's just related to volume. But the Valenzuela case, when it was in the Court of Appeals, actually had a dissenting judge. So there were there's three judges that sit on the panel. Two of them voted to affirm Valenzuela's conviction. And one judge, I think it was actually Judge Eckerstrom, and he's he's sort of well known as being a dissenting voice on the court. Uh, he wrote a really, really good dissent where he kind of laid out the basis for what would later become the Supreme Court's opinion in his dissent where he said, look, how do you call this voluntary consent when you start off by telling the person that they essentially don't have a choice, that they're required to do it? So what usually happens when you see cases go up to the Supreme Court, and I shouldn't say usually, what you often see is that you'll get a good dissent like that, which means you know that there's kind of a, a greater likelihood that the Supreme Court will accept review because there's a conflict amongst the judges. So mm -hmm. the lower courts uh, are not unanimous in what the decision should be. That's kind of a nudge to the Supreme Court. You know, maybe you should take a little extra look at this one uh, because maybe the law isn't perfectly clear. Maybe it could be better or maybe it, it requires a, a little bit of refinement. So that was what led up to the Valenzuela decision. And, you know, the Valenzuela case itself, <laughs> not, not, to, uh, not to diminish whatever Mr. Valenzuela had to go through. It, if I recollect correctly, Valenzuela was sort of just a run-of-the-mill DUI. There was nothing special about it. He got arrested for DUI. He got pulled over for traffic violations or a minor accident or something like that. He was subjected to the implied consent process. They read him the form. They said Arizona law requires you to submit to the test. And he got convicted of DUI and said, I did not voluntarily consent because you told me I didn't have a choice. So from a factual perspective, there, there was nothing remarkable about it, which is probably a good thing because most DUIs are like that. You know, we don't get a lot of DUIs that are that are extraordinary where something happened that just never happens. Most DUIs, probably 98% of them involve a minor traffic violation followed by a brief roadside investigation, followed by the reading of the implied consent admonitions, uh, the person usually consents to the test, blood is drawn, it's later tested in a crime lab, and the person gets charged and prosecuted for a DUI. So if I can ask real quick, in Valenzuela, clearly the court was originally, actually, the Valenzuela, the, the investigation and the arrest, it might have actually taken place before Butler, is that 
Does that sound right to you? Uh, you know, it's it's very good you picked up on that because I think I had the same thought and I had to look it up. My recollection was that Valenzuela happened after Butler. And it looks it, like it was August of 2012 that Valenzuela right. was arrested. And I think you said before Butler was 2013 case? The 2013 case, correct. Yeah, so if, I'm thinking that like it went up once and there was like a Valenzuela one and then it came back again. But ultimately, I guess the, the one thing the court was very concerned with was the use of the word required. And I can't, I can't recall right now whether it was because it was under the old admin per se form that they were using or if he just said it on his own as he tried to explain it because Valenzuela did, you know, kind of was very hesitant before he ultimately gave the consent that the court found wasn't voluntary. But I guess my question is, how important is that word? It, does it, is it, is, was the court in Valenzuela, are they saying we don't want you to say that Arizona law requires it? Or is it more the feeling that saying like Arizona law states or something like that, that that's their concern? Um, my, my recollection of Valenzuela itself was that they were really, they were really critical of that require word. Uh, because again, you know, the element that, that we're talking about is how voluntary the person's consent to the test is. So they, they were fairly critical of the form and, and my recollection of the holding of Valenzuela, you know, again, once Valenzuela came out, ADOT changed the form again. So it, it's, it's like a dead issue. You know, we'll never have this again, unless some cop somewhere picks up a form that's more than six years old to read it to the defendant. But the holding of Valenzuela was concerned that the form, and really that was it, you know, that the court was very careful to not upset the apple cart of the law of voluntariness. What they, they kind of limited their holding to was if a cop reads this boilerplate form that has the language about a person being required to submit to the test. That document, standing alone, if nothing else happens, that document will probably result in consent not being voluntary. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to deal with that, Department of Transportation, and, and it's funny because I remember I was watching sort of the court system very closely. You know, a lot of, I'd like to think a lot of the DUI practitioners were, but for me, you know, I was very closely watching what happened in time after Valenzuela. And you, you could tell, you could almost like smell it in the courtroom air that the system was not only expecting Valenzuela to come out the way that it came out, but they were ready for it because the very next day, I think I remember Valenzuela came out on like April 26th of 2016 or April 16th. I remember there was a six in there. I can't remember if it was the 16th or the 26th, but Valenzuela came out and the very next day, the Department of Transportation had issued a revised form for the implied consent affidavit that the cops immediately started using. So, you know, whatever, uh, whatever lawyer is the the legal advisor for the police departments was worth his or her salt that day because someone must have said to the cops, hey guys, the day that this comes out, you need to start using a different form because mm -hmm. it was extremely rare. You know, it, it usually, 
when you see a, a case come out from the Supreme Court that changes the law in that regard, it takes a little bit of time for law enforcement to kind of catch up. You, you would usually expect several months of the cops doing kind of the same thing before they, they get word of it, before they kind of realize, oh, okay, we can't do that anymore. But the very next day, I started seeing the revised form being read by just about every department in Maricopa County, and they changed the form significantly for the post-Valenzuela world. You know, whoever at ADOT cooked up that form must have been very concerned that if they only made minor changes, they would still have problems. So they basically rewrote the form from scratch. And what it says in the post-Valenzuela world is something like, uh, it's very, very banal. Uh, you know, it starts with, uh, make sure the person knows that they've been arrested for a DUI. And then the next question says, will you consent to a tester test? You know, it doesn't say anything about what the law requires you to do or what your choices are. It just goes straight to, you've been arrested for a DUI. Will you consent to a tester test of the blood breath or other bodily substance to determine alcohol concentration? Because they were, they were clearly trying to retreat from that, that pre-Valenzuela world where defense attorneys like me could come into court and start arguing that even if a person consented, it was not voluntary. They wanted to make sure that argument was uh, put to bed forever. And I, I think they did a pretty good job of it, to be honest. Since Valenzuela, I don't think I have ever in six years and probably a thousand cases, I don't think I have seen a voluntariness issue at least related to the form itself or to what the cop told them since because Valenzuela was so clear about what you can and can't say in terms of voluntariness. And, and you know, I'll, I'll leave you with this thought on this uh, point. The, the funny part is even the Valenzuela court didn't go so far as to invalidate every pending DUI. You know, they they kind of said, so first of, first of all, they went back to the good faith exception and they said, yeah. you know, even though we're changing the law, every DUI that was done under the old system, that's that's all still good practice. You know, we're not going to reverse all of those arrests. We're not going to reverse all of those convictions and all of those tests. So they were very clear to make sure that the universe knew it was only proactive and it was not retroactive. And the second thing they said was, even though they, they were critical of that language on the form, they didn't say just because a DUI uses this form that it's necessarily involuntary. They just said this form standing alone. So, you know, I, I've been waiting for and it, it never happened, but I was waiting for kind of a case where the cops still used the old form, but they tried to justify the voluntariness by changing the circumstances. You know, it's like we still told him that Arizona law required him to submit to the test, but we did it once he was home. You know, we did it under a nice setting. You know, we bought him a cup of coffee and then we <laughs> asked him, would he submit to a test? And that that kind of never happened. And I suspect it's because the ADOT lawyers got, got wind of that change so quickly. And they just, they wanted to make sure that would never be an issue. You know, DUI is probably, other than simple drug offenses, DUI is probably one of the highest volume crimes that gets committed in Arizona. So they have to make sure 
if there's a big sweeping change in the law, that they're ready to react to that. Otherwise, they, they're just making a lot of work for themselves. Yeah. And that, I mean, obviously what you're describing is that it's, and the court made this clear, like you, you said in Valenzuela, that it's a totality of the circumstances question. And so are there circumstances where the court could use or the, the officers could have used the old form? And the court would say, well, because you so clearly told him he could refuse and like you said maybe the circumstances surrounding where he is or how the other treatment is would that always be found to be involuntary or was that no it's a, it's a good question and I, but i agree i ultimately will probably never get it answered because not just is there is a dot pretty good at implementing this but police officers in this in DUI context have largely been trained they know what they need to do they know what they can't do there's a lot of case law around DUIs and so they immediately implemented the new change and 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 largely we haven't seen a lot but we have seen a little bit of case law a lot of it related to the good faith exception that you described um but there was a case that I think it seemed to me and you tell me what you think but it seemed this is state v deanda where I felt like the def- the defendant there was trying to say, well, if that's true in Valenzuela, then really voluntariness goes way farther than that. And you can't say that, you know, that there's going to be a civil punishment because that would also make it involuntary. You know, and I'm trying to remember that the Deanda decision better. That might have been the one case that slipped through my fingers in terms of uh, my brush up on recent case law. But, you know, the, the courts have always been very, very clear about drawing the line between civil consequences and criminal consequences. And they've always been very hands-off and very permissive. Well, I don't want to say permissive, but but they've been far less protective, and, and rightly so, of, of your driver's license than they have of your freedom. Mm-hmm. So you'll, you'll always see less protection for the civil consequences that come with a refusal or that come with the language on the form in terms of, you know, what are we going to do to your driver's license versus what are we going to do to your freedom? Yeah. And that is, you know, that's exactly what they were dealing with in Deanda, where it was kind of a form that an intermediate form that they used after what the court called Valenzuela one, but before Valenzuela two. And it, it did tell the defendant before when initially asking the question that it kind of let him know what the punishment would be if he refused and the defendant there is claiming you know that's that's you know that's not true consent it's not voluntary if you're if you're basically threatening him with punishment and the right, court, right. Mm-hmm. oh yeah sorry i had to interrupt you because you just reminded me and, and that was exactly it the, the, the deonta court if i remember uh the funny part is Deonda used the, the changed form after Butler. Mm-hmm. So it used the form that said Arizona law states instead of Arizona law requires. And the Deonda court actually said, nope, that's a correct statement of the law. That is that is not something we're going to invalidate because it, it's true. Arizona law does state that. And they, <laughs> yeah. they went they went into the circumstances of, well, you know, what's what's going to be the consequence of that? What's uh what's the effect on the person's chemical test when it comes time for court? But uh, they didn't have a problem with that. You know, it, my because my recollection is Deanda got affirmed. Uh, his conviction was upheld yeah. based on that language about the law states. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that was definitely part of it. And they also focused on that it is a totality question. And they felt that the officers had made clear that he had the right to refuse and he didn't. So that was kind of 
that. So forward looking a little bit, Adam, do you expect there to be more cases in this area? Do you think there'll be any other voluntariness or consent issues related to DUI? Or did we kind of have our seminal moment? The court got the form they wanted out of ADOT, and now we probably aren't going to see too many more of these cases. There's always going to be room for kind of the crazy set of circumstances. You know, there's always going to be room for for an exceptional case where something happens uh, that the law does not have a good answer for yet, and the only way to find it out is to litigate it. But I, I think until or unless our statutory structure for the consequences of getting a DUI changes, uh, this is what, uh, you know, appellate courts would call this well settled. You know, the, the law has been explored because DUI is such a prolific crime and because it gets litigated so thoroughly, we have a lot of case law that deals with different circumstances and whether or not voluntariness should should be found or shouldn't be found. So I, I'll put it to you this way. I, I can't say that we might not get some new twist on voluntariness law when it comes to DUI. I think I'd be surprised if anything monumental changed again, unless something changes the statute first. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Well, thank you so much, Adam. We appreciate your time. Like I said, I'm, I'm sure we'll have you back. Um, and as you know, we're, we're excited, looking forward to future episodes. And of course, reach out to us. But until next time, thank you all so much. No problem. Take care, Chick. Thanks for joining us today on Guilty as Charged. Please subscribe to our podcast to get more great discussion about law and crimes specific to Arizona. And also get access to Arizona Supreme Court audio. You can find Jake on Twitter at Jacob Brown AZ. 